The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey there, friends. It's great to have you along with us one more time on Afternoons with Mike Heard Daily here on the Shepherd Radio Network, all the way from Orlando and on up into Ocala and the Villages and Gainesville, wherever you're listening. It might be by podcast. We're glad to have you along with me today on the program. And our first segment here is Clayton Van Hus. Clayton is with Affirm Ministries. He's the director for that. And that is the apologetics branch of an organization, the Southwest Radio Ministries. And they're the ones that produce a show that is heard and has been uh, heard here on The Shepherd for some time called Watchmen on the Wall. So it is great to have you with us, Clayton. Well, Mike, I appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I am as well. I know that, uh, as I mentioned before we started the program, when I hear the word apologetic uh, and a person who directs an apologetic ministry, uh, that is such an important thing. The ability we all have to defend our faith, to explain our faith, to challenge other people about what they believe. Uh, It's not, you know, in case people are not familiar with apologetics, it doesn't mean saying I'm sorry all the time. It gives an explanation (laughs) and a defense for how we believe and what our faith is all about, right? That's right. At, At Affirm, we like to say illuminate, educate, defend. Uh-huh. And I think those are those are the important tenets of uh, Christian apologetics. You know, and Clayton, in our lifetime, I'm betting that there's probably not been a time more uh, where we're more aware of the need to defend our faith than we are right now. There seems to be attacks on anyone who assigns the name Christian with their life in any way at all. It's like uh, there used to be a day where pastors were kind of in in the town square, in the public square, were kind of respected. And, uh, you know, everyone had good feelings about it. And you, you're hearing more and more and more about attacks on people's faith and what they believe if they have faith, whereas if they have no faith at all, they're almost uh, honored. It, it's, a, it's upside down, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, we're putting a premium on intellectualism. Um, and so man's hubris really is what rises to the top in that. And uh, God gave us minds, and we are told to, uh, to use those minds to be prepared. You know, we read in Second Timothy um, that we are to uh, study, to show ourselves approved unto God. And uh, so that's what we do. You know, we have to engage the world um, on the level where they're thinking. Well, that is so good. We have to engage the world at, at where they are. I mean, that's the big point. We're not going to win any, uh, I guess you could say, any popularity contests in this day and age. But that does not no. mean that the people that we can reach aren't really wanting at some level what we have to say. And I, I think that's that's lost on a lot of us. It is. It is. And sadly, many believers don't know how to do this. I watch um, on social media, apologetics groups. I see arguments that break down into ugly fights and accusations and one believer accusing another of something. 
And um, we are not to be that way. I like what Bodie Bauckham says, to be winsome, to be kind, to be Christ-like in our approach. You know, you've just mentioned a name that my wife and I just watched a video from Bodie the other night, and he is standing and is one of the most articulate guys, but he comes from a background. His family up growing up, it wasn't one of wealth. It wasn't one of uh, it was privilege. Uh, he has had in his lifetime to work, and he is now recognized as this great theologian, a speaker, and a yeah. Bible teacher. But it it did not it was not handed to him on a silver platter, and so I think he's had to undergo a lot of what we're talking about the pushback, the resistance, even socially. Uh, he's had to go through a lot of that, hasn't he? Absolutely, and he is the very picture of meekness because physically he's an imposing man, and yeah. he's sure of himself. His, uh, his intellect is powerful. And yet when he talks, there is a humility and a kindness and a meekness that we all need to be putting into our discussions with the unbeliever. You know, that is such a beautiful picture, uh, I believe, of the teaching that, that Jesus gives us. He, he said, first of all, in Acts 1, that uh, just before the ascension, he told us that we would be his witnesses. And, you know, we're not just to be cold in that. We're not just to be. He's given us other instructions. Uh, We're not just to do the letter of the law. We're really to care about people. If they need this, we're to give them that. If they need our our coat, give them your cloak as well. This kind of a picture of kindness in the heart of the believer, even to a, a world, and we think there's probably no one individual more than Jesus that was treated in a way that was not right. I mean, he was innocent and yet he was crucified. So he's the only innocent, the only one. Right. And, and if, uh, you know, I I just was privileged to preach from first Peter at our church recently. And, you know, there in uh, chapter two of first Peter, Verse 21, it says, there's this, as Peter's giving us the instruction, we need to see this, he said, we need to have this thought in mind that Christ died on the cross for us, and we are to follow his example of, of what he did. I mean, we're we're called by God to do that work and to pay attention, special attention to that aspect that we're not always going to be treated the way we want to be treated. That's right. That's right. And and I figure if Jesus Christ, the one, uh, the only innocent who's ever lived, if he could suffer the injustice of being put on a cross and, and crucified, and yet he can still love those who did, um, those who deserve to be put down, um, then, then we, can, we can handle what he puts our way through him. Absolutely. Clayton, it is so great to uh, get to talk with you. Apart from this interview, we had never even met, and I'm so grateful that we've got this opportunity here because I know you're at a conference up in Ohio right now, and this group that you're with, Southwest, they're they're always teaching. They believe in the Bible, but they believe that the Bible is speaking today still to us uh, and that, that the voice, the prophetic nature of God is always drawing people, and we're in a time right now, aren't we? This is a time in history that has been talked about in the Bible for many, many years, and some of the things that seemed so far away back then when I was growing up, it seems like it's uh, in the news headlines today. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. We see it in the newspapers. Um, if you've been to Israel, um, you've seen it on the streets. Um, with, with, my, uh, with what I do I, as an archaeologist, we're digging it out of the ground. And to see it in these days, I really think that, that uh, everything is coming to a head now. Everything's coming to a fullness, to, a, uh, to fruition. Boy, I agree with you. Now, an archaeologist, that's something I think that all of us, if you've ever seen paleontology, archaeology, all of these things, looking for the clues that are buried in the ground. I mean, that is something that is so, to me, so interesting. And I found that I had such a desire for learning as much as I could. When I went to Israel, I was privileged to be one of those people to go up to what has been uncovered from an archaeological standpoint, the, the Wailing Wall, and realize yes. that you're standing right there before a, a, a point and a moment of uncovered history. That's got to be exciting yes. for you guys. Oh, it is. We, we dig at Tel Shiloh, which is biblical Shiloh. Um, the tabernacle stood there for over 300 years with the Ark of the Covenant until the Philistines took it. It was the capital of Israel, until uh, David moved it to Jerusalem. Right, right. So, you know, these are things that are there, and you're studying all of this. I know right now you're pursuing a, a degree in biblical history and archaeology, and uh, that's up. That's in Texas, out of Katy, Texas, right? Yes, yep, it's at the Bible Seminary, Katy, just outside of Houston, and uh, we are associated with Associates for Biblical Research. So you're on this uh, conference right now, and it's coming to us from Ohio. Tell us about what yeah. you're there for. Okay, so we're, we have a Southwest Radio Church uh, Prophecy Conference. We call it Clarity to the Chaos, where we speak about all sorts of biblical matters. I'll be speaking on an Old Testament prophecy from Numbers 2417, the star and the scepter that Balaam talked about, and that Jesus references in his penultimate words in the Bible. That's pretty exciting, my friend. Now, for a guy like yourself that is interested not only in theology but archaeology, how do these two things, uh, how do you find it? Do you think first as a theologian, or do you find yourself first thinking as an archaeologist? Okay, now that's a very good question. Absolutely, I think of myself as a theologian first. When we go to the field, we look in the Bible, and, you know, at Shiloh, there's no uh, shortage of clues as to what we're digging. I think of Elot Mazar, uh, the Jewish um, archaeologist digging in the city of David. And she followed the clues in the Bible to find uh, what we believe now could well be David's palace. Mm. Um, if, if any biblical archaeologist who will ignore the text and, and say, well, it's probably wrong, and then go look wherever they want, they're, they're not finding anything. The Bible has never been disproven through archaeology. You know, I had an opportunity just last week to talk to Elliot Wallach. He is the movie producer of uh, the new movie that's coming out in uh, November, November 5th and 6th. It's called God of Heaven and Earth. And this is going to be one that, if you haven't heard about it, it is all about this uh, this man's quest to find biblical and archaeological proof uh, that had to do with the uh, attacks and the earthquake uh, that happened at, at the time of the crucifixion. Uh, 
So we know that the, no. oh, it's fantastic. And so the first half of the movie is kind of his teaching this class on the Bethlehem star and the implications of what happened in Jesus' life. And uh, then it, it kind of switches over now through the life of Christ into the, the time of his crucifixion and how that the, the, both before Jesus was born and at the crucifixion, there are signs to uncover that have to do with uh, just everyday life. And so you as an archaeologist, I know you're going to love seeing this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the evidences of what the Bible says when they come out of the ground, when they come out of a text, when they come out of something. You know, one thing uh, that we have to be careful of as biblical archaeologists is uh, my mentor, uh, Dr. Scott Stripling, is fond of saying, and he has said to me, I can prove to you through archaeology that Jesus died on a cross. However, I cannot prove to you that he died for your sins and rose again on the third day. That's faith. So archaeology is not going to prove the supernatural claims of the Bible, but what it's going to do is illuminate the text for us. It's a perfect apologetic. You know, and I think that that is one of the big benefits about traveling on a trip to Israel. Now, right now, I know there that's probably something that all trips have been called off, I would imagine, with this war that's going on. It's not as, as like a normal time. But when I right. had an opportunity to go there and to see that, you know, there was a lot that was so different that we know it was different. Uh, Jerusalem was broken down and... Jerusalem was uh, uh, just besieged a number of times. So while so much has changed in Israel, there are some places that you know when you were there, like, for example, you're on the the Sea of Galilee, which we took a boat ride on that sea. And I'm telling you what, uh, that was one of the most exciting things to be on those waters or, or to go to the Jordan River. And I had a chance to baptize my mother there in the in the Jordan that is a memory that I don't think I'll ever forget. Right. Absolutely. You see the sights, you walk where Jesus walked. Uh, to me, one of the most fascinating sights is the site of Magdala and the, uh, the synagogue, the first century synagogue that was on earth. And the Bible tells us that Jesus taught in all the synagogues of Galilee. Right. And so you can stand a few feet from where Jesus would have stood as he taught the people. There's some, um, it, yeah. It's like nothing else. There is something, and, and you're right. Archaeology is not ever going to take the place of our faith, but it does. And, and I experienced just exactly what you said. It's just like it brings, when you're there and you have faith and you're walking on the field like we did, where supposedly David had the battle with Goliath. When you're on that same ground and you're there, it's it's like it causes those stories in the Bible to come to life in your heart. Yes, it does. It is uh, it is really something to behold. So when you think about what's going on in Israel right now, as we said, it's probably not the safest time to ever make a trip over, but all sure. eyes are on Israel right now. What are you thinking what uh, is striking you about this most recent now, oh, like a two-week-old uh, engagement in war? What yes. are your thoughts? So uh, I have plenty of friends in Israel, uh, archaeologist friends, um, 
I have Palestinian friends, Jewish friends, Christian friends. I watch as uh, each one of them is adjusting their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, We look at the sites, and we know that uh, some Hamas-backed groups have already tried to damage a site a couple of years ago up in Nablus. Uh, they they began to damage the site of Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal, and that's a big project for my group. And so, you know, there's legislation being passed right now to try to protect those places. So we have people like Avi Lipkin, uh, who is working within the government to protect a Jewish heritage site. And when you look at a site that's maybe 3,400 years old, it goes all the way back to renewing the covenant with God an altar built by Joshua. Uh, this is this is stuff that we cannot afford to lose. Boy, that's so true. And, and you know, we want that. We pray for that. Uh, we know that uh, peace and Israel, those two words rarely ever completely go together. <laughs> those are right. non-synchronous terms, it would appear. But there are things that we as believers who are far, far away can still be praying and asking God to preserve them, to bring mercy upon them. And the stuff that's going on right now that's happened with these attacks, these brutal attacks, it's just sickening. And so now we've got engagement to some degree with American forces over there. There's much that we can be praying for right now, and that certainly is part of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, these things affect. Um, this summer, our archaeology team, we dig. Shiloh is in what's known as the West Bank in Judea and Samaria. And our team was actually involved uh, in a Hamas attack, a Hamas shooting, two gunmen. Wow. Uh, we were there when it happened. And um, this is not unusual. This is not just in Gaza, not just coming out of Lebanon, but it is up there in the side of Judea and Samaria. Um, we watched as a... a, a Palestinian, a Hamas gunman, was shot down by an Israeli citizen. Mm. Well, you just never know what you're going to see. And uh, again, our prayers are going out for them and for wisdom, for our leaders, for their leaders. This is so true. Uh, It is great to have you with us. Clayton, give us, if you will, how people can get in touch with you, how they can learn more about what you're doing there at Affirm and uh, how they can read up on Southwest. Well, thanks, Mike. Affirm is, uh, like we said, the new apologetics ministry of Southwest Radio Church. So you can find us at swrc.com, or we'd love it if you'd look at our Facebook page, Affirm Ministries, uh, where we'll be sharing apologetics resources and uh, just trying to have conversations with believers, uh, much of it archaeologically based, but uh, definitely apologetics-focused. Oh, that's great. Clayton Van Huss, it's great to have you. Can't wait till the next time we're together, my friend. This is really exciting to talk. Absolutely, Mike. It has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. God bless you, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike, and you're on The Shepherd. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years' experience, EC Waters is a top-trained comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144. 
or visit ecwaters.com. Palm Beach Atlantic University Orlando offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. Here we are now. So glad to have with us on the line Melinda Hudson. This is her second time being with us. She was on the program back in July. Uh, Melinda has a great background in healthcare. She's a registered nurse. Uh, she, I know, is an instructor. She's also a speaker. She's an author, and she's getting into some coaching as well, uh, a background of nursing education, and she has a book out, and this is one of the things that we're going to be talking about uh, here as we go in this segment is her book on unforgiveness. The common denominator is unforgiveness. And then she has a, a kind of a subtitle with that, The Process to Forgiveness. So it's one thing to, you know, to be in a state of unforgiveness, but that's not where we want to stay. We want to get to the point where we are forgiving. And it is great to have you with us back. Melinda Hudson, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You know, Melinda, your background, I'm sure you've seen in healthcare, you've seen a lot of times where uh, people will let their true colors come through when they are in the hospital or when they're sick or when they're injured, uh, you, <laughs> those walls that sometimes people put up, uh, they, those call those, they really do come tumbling down, uh, when they're sick or injured, right? Yes, that is very true. Um, it, it, especially if they're in a situation where they, um, were doing okay and actually just something happened out of the blue, um, they can change very quickly and um, often, thank goodness, kind of turn towards um, not just forgiveness, but getting their life straight in general. And um, I've had the opportunity to talk to quite a few people over the years that wanted to get their life right with God when they were close, you know, living right at the end. So, it's been, um, that's been a unique opportunity for me that I didn't think I would ever have. I can see that. And, you know, this whole thing about, uh, I guess, a person's deepest and darkest areas of their life that they suppress when they're facing something very serious that might be life ending, they do often go back and they review those things, those areas, those pockets those uh, built around uh, with walls built around them areas of their heart that's been hurt or maybe they were abused in one way or another. It all comes out in those moments because I think no one, even if they don't have a firm, let's say, theological understanding of God, but there's something about it. If a person knows they're dying, there's a little bit of fear and apprehension that they don't want to go in with this bitterness in their heart. And that gives an opportunity for people, especially in healthcare, of, if, for you to talk with people and to see people 
who are in those states. That's got to be pretty uh, amazing to to be in your shoes in that point. Yeah, it definitely it has been. It's funny because, you know, when you're thinking about going into nursing, it's kind of like, okay, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that, you know. And I wasn't going to work with young people and I wasn't going to be involved with elderly, especially, you know, if they were dying and did both. And I think um, working with people as they are passing away, um, it, it, it is a very um, – for me, it was it was humbling in a way because I had the opportunity to be able to, I guess, um, take some of that fear away. Normally, as a nurse, you're not supposed to talk to them about religion unless right, they bring right. it up to you. And so that was the opportunity that I had. And I'll never forget one particular situation where a gentleman, um, he— did not have things right with three, his three kids. He had gone through a divorce, you know, years prior. Then he remarried, and I don't think the kids accepted it. And um, and so there he's literally looking at going to the hospice house or going home for hospice. And as I started talking to him, he opened up about it. And um, so I ended up calling one child who ended up calling the rest of them. But they got things right before he passed away. And oh, I was so wow. glad. So you were a real advocate, not only for the man, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's that other side, like you said, the kids. Yes. And if the kids had, let's uh, say, they bought into the estrangement of that relationship, mm-hmm. and maybe they said things that were, uh, they shouldn't have spoken, they shouldn't right. have said. So there's right. there's a problem on their side as well. So you're not just advocating for one side of that party. You're doing both sides. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he um, it it was important to him, but he wasn't going to take the initiative. Um, but as I spoke with him, I knew that you know it it would make him feel so much better. And I had the idea that their you know his family might want to know. And sure enough, they did. I mean, when I spoke with the first son, um, he was just like, how much longer, how much longer? And I said, I don't know if we even have a day. And um, and I think he was in Texas or something like that. And he says, well, I'll get on the next plane. And um, he said, can I talk to my dad? And I had called on my cell phone, and I said, you sure can. You know, so I went in there, and, and I told him, you know, I've got your son on the phone, and he'd like to talk to you. And handed him my phone and walked out, you know, and gave them an opportunity to talk to him. How long did so, he did he live? Um, he only lived, I think his last, the, the son that I called first, because I really um, called him, and he ended up calling the daughter and the other son. But I believe he lived until the last child got here, and it was a little over a day. So it wasn't long at all. Yeah, you were right then. He, You didn't have a, an extended amount of time. No. And actually, it was weird because a lot of, of patients that you see, like, they're not talking very much or, you know, um, they're not mobile or whatever. But this gentleman was. And um, I, I think there was a part of him that maybe was just holding on to being able to talk to his kids. I mean, I don't know. But it was interesting that he was mentally okay, and then, you know, a day and a half later, 
he was he was gone. Mm. So, yeah, I I think that that was one of the things about being uh, what they called a clinical liaison, where I worked with families that were trying to make a decision. Because a lot of times you want to die at home, but the thing you have to think about is as a caregiver, um, his wife, the children were not around. They were in different states. And there was really nobody that she had that could help her, you know, um, not knowing how long he would be there. Right. Um, I'm sure she had some friends that might be able to come over, but it wasn't anybody that she could really lean on. And, um, and in those situations, I kind of encourage him to go to, like, the hospice house because you want to be able to be their wife and not their caregiver, and it's hard to be both. Right. You know, so I usually encourage, if there's not a lot of support, I usually encourage them to go to the hospice house because it really is a nice place. They've got great nurses, and it allows you to spend the extra day or however long it is as the wife and not the caregiver that's running around trying to do all the things necessary, you know, for that person. You know, you're dealing with a couple of major, major things here. We're talking, obviously, end of life, and that certainly has to be one of the most difficult things to navigate, to mitigate, regardless of what side you're on. If you're the son or daughter, and it's your parent who's passing, who's in the process of transition, uh, that's one thing. And then you add to that these relational problems that are there, uh, that yeah. weigh in on this, those two things together, that's quite a one-two punch. Yes, it, it definitely is. I mean, I've had the opposite side where a pastor who had retired, he had um, two sons and a daughter. They actually went to the church that I was attending at the time and um, didn't really want to take them to the hospice house. A lot of times they want them to stay there in the hospital. They don't want to try to take them somewhere else if they're really not doing well. But there's a couple of issues there. I mean, the hospital doesn't really want the statistic of a person dying there, to be really honest with you. Um, and especially when they have the hospice house available. And um, so I had had some time convincing them to do that. But then uh, it was so it was so interesting because I went there after I got off work, so-called, and wanted to check and see how he was doing. And um, the doctor happened to walk in about the same time I walked in. So I walked out for a minute and then came back in, and he had wanted to talk to the family. So they, she asked me, the wife, she said, do you mind staying with him while we go talk with the doctor? And I'm like, no, that's not a problem at all. And um, as soon as they went out the door, it was like he went, it was like he knew, even though he was on morphine, he wasn't doing anything really, um, except for when they went out the door, he started like picking at his gown and kind of moving a little bit. And I was like, wow. So I went right to his ear and I started singing Amazing Grace. And he got the biggest smile on his face. Oh, that's great. And so I was able to sing several songs. And then when the family came in, she's like, how did you get him to smile like that? And I said, well, I've just been singing to him. And, you know, they say hearing is the last thing that goes. And I truly believe it because I've had too many situations where I know that they 
were able to hear, and that was one of them. And so I just stayed for a couple more minutes and then left. And 15 minutes later, she called me, and she said that he had passed away with that smile on his face. Wow. Just like that. Yeah, yeah, and you just never know when you're when you're in that process. People can last longer than they think. Uh, there's yeah. there's uh, some people that go months under hospice mm-hmm. care, and then like my father-in-law when he passed, it was they they brought him home from the rehab center, and that night he passed, even though he was under hospice care there at the house, but it was for right. less than twenty four hours. So we just, you just never know, but you said something mm-hmm. earlier and I wanted to go back because I think you're right. Uh, there are some evidences that when people are in that, that form of transition, and this is a topic again, we, we're still going to get to unforgiveness and all that, oh, that's uh, but, but the, yeah. this is, this is important. I think for people who might be maybe facing this, there's a reality that some people seem to be able to hang on. Like you said, they mm-hmm. hang on just a little longer until they, the one son or daughter who's out or, or the other person, there's almost like God gives a little bit of grace for that uh-huh. person to hang on until that last thing is settled or that last relationship is discussed or whatever. That right. seems to happen, doesn't it? It does. It's interesting. I mean, you hear the stories where, they sort of passed away, but they live an extra six months for their daughter's wedding, you know, or something like that. So you you see that. And then you see where, like you just said, I remember in nursing school, I'll never forget it, because I had a patient who was considered brain dead, but they left everything, you know, um, plugged in till the last son came in. And there was quite a few of them. I don't even remember how many, but I remember this last son came in, and I had been with her all day. She had not, there was no movement at all, even when they were getting, like, um, like blood levels from the arterial blood levels just to, mm-hmm. I guess, have the evidence. And um didn't even flicker, and that is not very comfortable. But anyway, but her son, um, he came in. He was a younger gentleman, and was somewhat taken back by all the tubes and all the things in there. And I told him, I said, you know, pull up a chair and just talk to your mom because they they say that hearing is one of the last things that goes because it's part of the brain in the brain stem. And um, so he did, he pulled up a chair and before I left the room, he started, he said, mama, mama, I love you or something like that. I can't remember. And I looked, and tears were coming out of her eyes. Mm. And so I went out, like, quick, because, like I said, I was a nursing student. I was like, Dr. Peden, I don't think she's dead. He said, what? And I said, no, I saw tears. And um, literally, they have tear cloths at the hospice house so that often you can catch that last tear. Oh, I did not know that. I know. I didn't either. And when I was at the hospice house is when— there are people that um, that give you know, like quilts and different things to people at the very end. And a tear cloth is what it's called. And they're very small, but it's something where you can catch that last tear. And, um, yeah, it, it definitely floored me, too. I mean, like I said, I'm not letting them know, but I'm running out thinking, okay, <laughs> this person is not dead. 
but yeah, so it's, I think it's so great. Like if you have had anything, you know, any controversy maybe with your parent or whoever it is, just to say, look, I'm here. I wanted to let you know I've forgiven you um, because they're not going to be able to talk and they may want to think that you forgave them, but can't mm-hmm. say anything. And I want you to forgive me too, you know? So like you said, there's sometimes, Usually in arguments and all, it's not just one side. So you've said things that you probably might not have said, you know, should have said too. Right. It gives you that opportunity. Yeah, and there's always two sides to all of these things, and it is so important. And I think while uh, we kind of finish this aspect up, and then in our next segment, we'll talk more about uh, some of the items that you list on your book, actually on the cover of the book which uh, are their very important issues as well. But this whole thing about uh, death and end of life is uh, something that I knew very little about for many, many years from a personal standpoint or actually having lost. And then I lost my dad in 2015 and I lost my mom last year in 2022. And in both of their passings, uh, both were different. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, I think that's pretty much down the way it's going to be for everyone, but, right. uh, but there were aspects of, of what we've talked about today that were really prevalent in, in terms of my dad. I believe he was waiting for me to get there. I, mm-hmm. I you know, uh, there's, he wasn't talking a lot. I'd just been with him for a full week and then I uh, left to visit, uh, my wife's uh, folks and her dad was going through a surgery at that point. And uh, I stayed there a couple of days and drove back to Florida midweek after having left my own dad on Sunday. I drove back and when I pulled into my driveway, I talked to my mom that very Wednesday night and found out that dad had taken that day a major turn for the worse. And uh-huh. so Thursday, it was pretty clear that things were not going well. Uh, and we booked a flight for me on Saturday morning and he died Saturday night. And so we don't have time. And I think the point to take home with all of this, if there is unforgiveness for someone who's in this process, it Uh is important that you cover it and get it because you don't know how long you have. Exactly. Exactly. uh, You know, and that's true on a day to day basis. And that's the last chapter of the book is, Live a lifestyle of forgiveness. Every single day forgive. You know, don't go to bed angry, just like the Bible says, you know. And the reasons for that, and we might be able to go into them later, but bottom line is the subconscious mind has that information stored in it. And so it ends up harboring it, and we need to forgive daily. Otherwise, um, defense mechanisms come in like repress and suppress. That's right. We just don't think about it, you know. Melinda Hudson is my guest. We'll be back with her in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike. You're on The Shepherd. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095. 
Melinda Hudson is my guest here, and it's been such a delight to learn from her, to learn these things that I think it's important. Even if we've gone through it, maybe years ago, when the next loved one comes to this point of their life, and we're all going to be there, friends. This uh, We're born, in some senses, to die. And that is so important. Her book really does weigh in heavily on this uh, need. And uh, I, I trust that if you have gone through this or maybe in the process of about to go through it, you'll seek out this book uh, on uh, forgiveness, the importance for forgiveness. The actual title is The Common Denominator is Unforgiveness, Process to Forgiveness. And we all need to be on that process. It doesn't really matter what the cause is. Now, on your cover, you don't talk about uh, death so much as it is some of the things that are maybe factors that are caused from unforgiveness. And I think a lot of people, they, they miss this. They don't tie in some of the physical problems that are very serious, maybe serious unto death. But these serious problems are exacerbated by the fact that this person is living in a state of unforgiveness. And you list a number of them. High blood pressure, anxiety, heart attack, back pain, headache, cancer, and depression. Now that's like the big list right there of a lot of the most common maladies that people have today. So so tell us from your standpoint, how do those two things go together, this list and the issue of unforgiveness? You're correct. Unforgiveness, most of the time when we think about forgiveness, we think about religion. And what I found when I started writing um, The Common Denominator is Unforgiveness about, well, seven, eight years ago now, what I found was that there was 35 years or 30 years at the time of research on the science of forgiveness. So, Besides the fact that we need to forgive in relation to relationship to, um, you know, religion and our relationship with God, we also need to forgive because there's a connection between our mind and body, and that's what these researchers studied. They wanted to see is there a connection, and so the things that you listed, like blood pressure, heart attacks, cancer, all of those things come from not forgiving, because our subconscious mind takes that information, and it stores the the information. It stores all the information, but in particular, it stores this information that in the subconscious mind is negative, Mm -hmm. and often it becomes, you know, harbored um, or suppressed, and we don't think about it, and our bodies literally over time become toxic because of a response called a stress response, or it's called fight or flight. And so we don't realize it's happening, but basically our subconscious mind, something triggers it to the event that happened initially, and it recalls that event, releases the hormones, but since the event isn't really happening, it doesn't utilize those hormones. And so our bodies become toxic. And then over time, we end up having some type of medical problem because of it. Now, when people are in that state of unforgiveness, and let's say it's uh, with 
a family member, uh, a sister, a brother, a, a daughter, a son, mm-hmm. a spouse. It doesn't really matter with whom. The uh, there seems to me in my experience, there's like a division of two different groups of people who are really battling unforgiveness. Number one, it would be those that feel that their level of unforgiveness is justified. And then there would be a second group that they, they kind of know they shouldn't have that. They shouldn't be right. harboring it, but they do anyway. But for the the first group that feels justified in their unforgiveness, that seems like that would be a pretty tough nut to crack right there, right? Yes, definitely. And people that I've spoken with that were abused when they were kids, for example, or maybe a spouse who's, um, you know, significant other cheated on them. Those people are very adamant about not forgiving and feeling like they have a reason to justify not forgiving. And, you know, you don't even if you don't think about it from a religious perspective, we're told to forgive. But if you think about it from the scientific, you're only hurting yourself by not forgiving. You know, you're not forgiving for them. You're really forgiving for you because of what's going to happen long term. And what I found was in some college kids that I've talked to over the years that have been willing to talk to me about their stories is that they were all probably in their early 20s and um, already had major medical problems um, as far as autoimmune problems, GI problems. Um, One had some heart issues. So they were showing signs of, you know, these medical problems. And again, it's the reason being is because they haven't forgiven that person. And our bodies are so unique. Um, You think about the Big Bang Theory, and there's no way that something could have banged and we were just, (laughs) we were just there. Our bodies are way too unique and complex. Oh yeah. For that to happen, you know. So um, anyway, so our our bodies, it's a reaction in the subconscious mind that we cannot stop. It's like the subconscious mind controls our breathing. It controls mm-hmm. our heart rate. It controls our temperature. So you can't change that. You know, you can hold your breath and try to change your pattern of breathing. But the bottom line is you're going to breathe and you're going to go back to that same rate, which is controlled by the subconscious mind. The same thing is the case of the release of these hormones with this stress response. It's like I said, there's something that happened. Say, for example, you know, there was a couple that got, you know, in a very bad um confrontation because she found out he cheated or he found out she cheated and the bottom line and this is really strange but in the bottom line I mean in the background um say she was cooking an apple pie and so anytime she smells that apple pie then the subconscious mind is triggered or or the subconscious mind really is what picks it up one of the five senses so it picks up that smell it recalls that event and then releases the hormones. Oh, that's right. That the hormones aren't used. And that's what that's what our memory does on just about anything. It exactly. can be triggered and in if it's triggering this thought of unforgiveness, that thing just like brings it right back up to the 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 front of the 
of the mind and the you know you're you're having to deal with it as if it had just happened. Right, right. And you know the thing about uh, the thing about forgiving and any process and the three scientists that studied um, unforgiveness, the science of unforgiveness, they all three have their own processes of forgiveness. And I came up with mine because of, you know, a situation that happened in my life, but it was about 20 years ago when I came up with it. But the bottom line is you have to go through those events and you have to feel those emotions and be willing to what forgiveness means is letting go or cease to hold on to anymore. So you have to say, okay, I'm at a point that I am going to forgive. And I tell people you can kind of see it in your mind where you put anger and bitterness and hate written on a balloon, a Sharpie, right, you know, right on the balloon. And you let those balloons go. So once they're gone, they're gone. That's right. And you have, you you know, you have completely forgiven that person. Now, it doesn't necessarily change things right away, but over some time, it, it, it will because you were, you know, you took the initiative to forgive. And so, like I said, go through those um, memories versus just leaving them in the subconscious mind and not dealing with them at all. Right. Now, I heard from a pastor years ago something I've never forgotten, and he said that when you forgive, you're really telling not only that other person, but also God, that you are giving up your right, that if there ever was such a right, right. Uh, to hold that bitterness against that mm-hmm. person. You're giving that up. It's a release. So it's a wonderful, godly release that you're no longer just holding in the same place. It's no longer front burner. It's not yeah. there and you're giving it to God and that forgiveness, that exchange, you get reconciliation instead of for, of unforgiveness. What right. a great exchange that is to have the, the blessing and the peace of God fill your heart in the void that once was held by unforgiveness. Yes. And you know, the great thing about it is in many situations, once you forgive, um, whatever's going on in your life, maybe you're just having GI problems and you don't even associate it with unforgiveness. Usually what happens is you'll get better and then your body in many cases can actually heal itself of cancer, of diabetes, of migraines, of back pain, Mm. all those different things um, once you forgive. Because once you forgive, then you're not having those hormones released anymore and keeping your body in a toxic state. And not only is it toxic, but it's negative. And that negativity rolls over into relationships that you have with people and things like that. You're just not the same person when you're carrying around those negative feelings that, you know, you may not even be thinking about, but they still have an impact on your day-to-day relationships and the way you feel in general. You know, when you think about it, it makes great sense because our emotions are 
uh, this level of uh, unforgiveness, it lives in this realm of our nerves, of our emotions. And the nervous system is such a huge part of the human body. It makes total sense that if your nervous system is really, really impacted and upset with bitterness and unforgiveness, it makes perfect sense that that's going to bring a physical response as well as an emotional one. Yes, and that's exactly what these guys, these scientists studied from the, you know, 30, 35 years ago now, is the mind and then the body connection. They wanted to find out, you know, if there's something, bitterness or anger, if there's things, emotions in the, in the mind, can they affect the body? And again, what they found was definitely there was a connection, mm. and that connection is strong. The subconscious mind is very, very protective. So what you find is, um, if you go back and you think about the first time you bungee jumped or the first time you sang in front of a group of people or spoke in front of the people, most of the time you can kind of hear your subconscious mind say, don't do it, don't do it, you know. And the reason that it does that is because it is protective and it has no history of you doing it before. Mm -hmm. So it wants, it thinks it's protecting you and that's why it's telling you not to do it. Well, when you get to the unforgiveness side, like I said, it brings in those defense mechanisms. So even if you consciously were to try to go back and think about it, it will ch it'll change your thoughts because it thinks if you go back and think about it, that you're going to hurt. And you usually would. Yeah. So quickly, it tries to get you back on the path of, you know, thinking something else. And it's really, it's really interesting how our subconscious mind can work that way. And, you know, that's why when you forgive, you have to make that conscious decision, okay, I know that I need to forgive and go through and, you know, feel those emotions and then come to the point that you say, okay, I am not going to hold on to them anymore. You know, um, it doesn't mean that you're letting them off the hook or anything like that. Your, your work isn't with your for yourself at this point in time that's right so that you can clear you know what's going on within yourself and so it's almost like i tell people sometimes it's almost like having a backtrack full of books and you take it off and you put it you know on a chair table whatever and that relief that you feel that's it's right kind of a similar feeling once you're willing to forgive like the backpack that was on uh, christian in uh, the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress, we get to take it off and lay yes. it at the feet of Jesus. Melinda That's Hudson, exactly. it's been so great. Give us quickly, if you will, your web address and how people can find your book. Okay, so it's um, Melinda Hudson is my, I'll give you my email first. It's Melinda Hudson and then the number 64 at gmail.com. And then the website is Melinda cares with an S.com. So there are two ways that you can get up with me. Um, and once we make contact, then that, you know, I am, I'll give people my telephone number and talk to people. You know, my, my life at this point in time is to help other people in any way that I can. And so if people want to talk, then I'm here to talk. 
And, you know, as long as I have, you know, I've got 24 hours a day. So as long as I have time to do it, that's what I want to do. Well, I thank you for being with me today. And we're out of time for this program. Look forward to touching base with you in the future, Melinda. And friends, thank you as well for joining us today. We'll see you next time on Afternoons with Mike. 